This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. We're here on the floor of the Craft Brewers Conference in Denver, Colorado, uh, talking to some good friends. Our friends from G&D Chillers are here, a underwriter sponsor for the podcast. And we have Josh Freem, uh, co-founder and brewmaster of Freem Family Brewers in Hood River, Oregon. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation about brewing with Josh. Uh, but first, the SS BrewTech founders launched with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, and industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS BrewTech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to SS BrewTech for more information on the brew houses and brewing gear. Great beers are made from select ingredients. With BSG, you'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road. Their dedicated customer service team and industry experience provide you with the assistance you need every step of the way. Let BSG be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. For more information, visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. Also, we'd like to thank the American Homebrewers Association, a community of homebrewers, and an essential source of brewing tips, recipes, and homebrewing culture. They're great supporters of the podcast and magazine, and if you're not already a member, you can join at homebrewersassociation.org. Since we've got our, our friends from G&D here, you guys work really closely with Josh. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, G&D and uh, you know, how the company came to be and uh, what you guys have, uh, have been doing lately with Frame. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks for having us on. Sorry, Justin uh, Thomas of G&D Chillers. Yeah. So we actually started, well, the company started more in the wine industry. The, the D and G&D uh, did supermarket refrigeration for 30, 40 years. And when he retired, he had a vineyard and uh, one of the local wineries he was selling grapes to needed a chiller and he built a chiller in his garage and the con- company took off from there. So we've always had roots in, in wine and fermentation and obviously with the growth in the beer industry, our company grew with it and we've always stayed focused on that aspect of fermentation and cooling, uh, designing chillers specific for that application. So. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a unique way of how the company got off the ground from a garage to where we are today. But uh, yeah. Sounds like a story that a lot of brewers can echo to from, from the garage out into the, the whole specter of uh, you know professional brewing that we're facing today. Yeah. And you guys have a lot of commercial installations all over the country with uh, some, some incredibly well-known brewers that, uh, that everybody respects. It uh, has to be fun to, to work with some really talented individuals for you guys. Absolutely. It's a great industry to be in and, and we're blessed to be able to have the opportunity to work with so many people around the country. and different styles of beer and different uh, uh, regions of the country that you know specialize in different in different types of beer so it's, it's a very fun industry to be in cool let's uh, pivot for a second and talk to Seth a little bit about some of the history of, uh, of what you guys done and work with uh, with Freem there in Hood River well so we uh, we've actually been partnered with Freem um, you know contracted with them uh, basically since their infancy um, Started off with a small dual seven chiller and, you know, grew into a 54 and now this new project, a um, couple hundred horse chillers, uh, the other ones, you know, down the road, but it's, you know, the past uh, eight, eight, ten years, I would say. Yeah, four to eight, you know, so it, uh, it's been a, it's been fun working with them and uh, they're a great group, great group of guys and uh, it's, uh it's definitely helped uh, G&D, um, you know, propelled us as well, having a good partnership with uh, Josh and these guys. So Yeah, over the years, we've worked with G&D really closely from the very beginning, working with uh, Andy, Justin, and Seth. Uh, right when we had a bare bones building, they helped us design uh, not only the chilling capacity, but also the glycol lines and the install itself, which has been super important. 
we're a lager brewery and we take really, really, really close attention to every single point of the process. And it's been awesome to have a partner like these guys that uh, have helped us create systems from like design to fabrication to install uh, that can spec our designs and needs. Everything from fairly early on, we just had uh, 30, 45 barrel tanks, up to 90 barrel tanks, uh, and now uh, with our newest install, we'll be able to do uh, 210 barrel fermenters, uh, design not only current capacity loads, but uh, future capacity loads, and then uh, be able to work together to design a whole system to build it to the future so we're not ripping things out uh, or having to redo things. And so uh, the, the partnership has been awesome, uh, and we've always been able to calculate and stay ahead. Uh, one big thing for me is always putting in more uh, capacity of whatever, whether it's electricity, gas, uh, from the utility side to on the utility brewing side, uh, putting in an extra load of capacity and it takes quite a bit of calculation and a lot of work and experience and G&D has always been able to work with us on, on that and uh, we've always been able to put in like the extra 20 to 30% capacity which I've been really grateful for because you're like, oh man, we'll never use that. And then, and then you do. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it comes up quick, a lot quicker than you think. You know, it always feels like as you grow, each product you get into, you're like, oh man, it won't get harder than that. We had some earlier ones. And then this one, this was a challenge. And we, it, was, it was a hard nut to crack because we had to, uh, we're like, okay, we need this 100 horsepower chiller to come on. But in that process, we realized that we need to bring an incredible more amount of power to our facility, uh, 1,200 amps at 480 to be able to power the two future chillers and to be able to handle all the other expansion equipment. And so we had to create a bridge opportunity and we got super creative. So we put in the whole uh, master plan piping uh, and then we ran all the calcs tight on like what will our, can our current chiller do uh, in order to handle getting fermentation on while we are down the road uh, on this uh, power upgrade, which is a huge project that's happening currently. Uh, and what we do to get there, we came with a great solution uh, where we, is, how big is the chiller that you guys lent us? Um, well, that one is a, uh, it's a 13 and a half. Yeah, dual, 13, or uh, just, 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 just a single compressor. It's, so what we were able to do is temporarily uh, put in a, a 13 horsepower unit that we're hooking up just to our heat exchanger. And so we pulled our heat exchanger out of, a, of the overall glycol loop, which took a huge load off. And then uh, we're able to brew into our new fermenters uh, and have an amazing amount of chilling capacity. We put a lot of calcs and specs into the piping itself, and it's working really, really well. Uh, and we're also doing uh, work with our um, on, a, on the on the program side, uh, really cool program to utilize the capacity of uh, the jackets and the overall chilling capacity and load. And it's it's working. It's bridged us the gap that we'll have new power. Uh, put in place uh, in the next like, two or three weeks, and then I think you guys are out back out in a month. Uh, but man, these guys have been so great to work with. I mean, over the years, we've now gone through several chillers. They've all been incredible. They, our first first chiller was great. We uh, sold that back to uh, Steve Lukes over at uh, Hodbert. He was the one that got yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's made its way. Still make a great beer, which is super fun, and yeah. the equipment has been awesome to use. We've had super little maintenance uh, needed uh, all the all the glycol piping have had virtually no issues and install has been smooth these guys work their butt off and so it's been it's been really really cool to you know you you find these partners in the industry and it's really important as you're growing your brewery that you can work with people that you can trust and that know know what your goals are and what you're trying to achieve and they they work with you to get there and have creative solutions so it's been been an awesome partnership it's been really cool to keep doing project after project with these guys yeah, and there's going to be more to come. So Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's high praise indeed for G&D Chillers. Uh, thank you for sharing your experience uh, you know, with them, Josh. That's uh, you know, it's kind of cool to hear that you've worked well with an industry partner. We certainly appreciate G&D's support of the podcast and our ability to uh, bring great conversations out to our listeners. And uh, now, speaking of that, let's talk to you about uh, Freem and some of your approaches to brewing. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you're a lager brewery. Is that uh, you know, kind of the, the core function? And, and maybe you know, back up a little bit and tell me how you got down this road to launch a commercial brewery and then focus on sure. what you do. Sure, absolutely, Jamie. Yeah, you know, let's start with, you know, kind of getting the heart and soul and the, the focus of what 
where we've gone from and how we got there and you know how that relates back to lager brewing um, so this has been a long-term vision and dream of mine to own a really high quality uh innovative progressive brewery um you know i was when i fell in love with craft beer when i was in college and studying business at the time and i naturally started homebrewing and i fell in love uh, with making beer and the first batch of beer i knew i wanted to be a brewmaster on my own brewery someday so really first batch first batch yeah love yeah, it, yeah, first yeah, batch. yeah 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 it was fun uh, side note to that yeah. is um, highland park brewery down in uh, la who's killing it uh, bob coons who's the brewmaster owner there it was we brewed that first batch of beer together so kind of fun 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 history as time goes on but yeah. um so anyways i i've really dedicated my entire career to uh, not only opening a brewery, but great business and with great intent. I've always felt like there's plenty of beer out there, uh, and you know people are dying of thirst. But what is always in need is great beer, and so I always thought if you know I got to a point that I had the opportunity to pull the pieces together to be able to make uh, beer uh, out of my own brewery, that it would be one that would be awesome and be able to bring something to people. And so through that. Um, I, I have two. some lofty goals. Yes, yeah. And so I. I mean, but an interesting one. You know, a lot of people want to get into the business because they have a passion for it. But to say I don't want to get in the business unless I can make the best possible beer and add something to the world of brewing. I mean, that's a bold goal. It, it is, and it, you know, it's really what we hung our hat on uh, from my business partners, uh, Ken Whiteman and Rudy Kellner. Uh, just the three of us that own the company. When we got together, I uh, met us friends. I and decided to push go in 2011 uh, on the brewery. Our goals were simple. We wanted to do everything we could to make the best beer possible. Right. Uh, and so we wanted to make sure you know, we had to have like the best brewing facility. Uh, obviously, the best team. Our team is amazing. They're like family. Uh, they're a humongous part of what we do. Uh, and then everything from our tasting room to the experience to the uh, to the food to how our brands perceived in the marketplace uh, to our packaging and of course with all of our uh, with our customers and our, our relationships out there we all they always had to live up to be as good as the beer itself and so we all uh, work every day at frame waking up every morning to make better beer than we did yesterday and it's definitely our mantra and so within that, I've always had a love for uh, a lot of different European styles of beers. Sure. Very, very inspired by Europe culture and brewing traditions, but also I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I uh, grew up in Washington and love hop forward beers as well. And so a big thing for us has uh, been diversity. And so, you know, we have a strong focus on uh, German lager brewing. Right. Uh, and then obviously very inspired by Belgian beers and barrel aging programs and uh, uh, spontaneous beers. And then also we do a ton of hop forward beers uh, from West Coast bright hoppy beers to hazy IPAs now. And uh, we'll make over 130 different beers this year alone. But, you know, at the heart of that, I would say, is uh, our flagship beer, which is Pilsner, which is a oh, lager. And right, so right. Uh, really, we've always designed the brewery about being a lager brewery. But actually, back in uh, 2011, we're brewing. I mean, lagers weren't the trend that they are now. Right. Uh, and if you had told me that uh, that Freem Pilsner uh, in 2019 uh, was going to be our flagship beer and uh, driving the brewery, I probably would have passed out. I'm so excited. I would never believe that would have happened. But uh, it's awesome to be at this so point. So it didn't just happen, though. How did you make that happen? You know, first, and I, and I guess, the, you know, the question for me, like, when you start talking about Bilsner, the, the biggest pitfall with that is that it becomes, for a lot of consumers, you know, just a beer-flavored beer that, uh, you know, uh, so how do you, you know, as you're envisioning a Pilsner that you want to make, um, consider, you know, the recipe and the design and that process to produce a Pilsner that both feels traditional, because you do care about that tradition, but also feels like it has its own personality and has a personality that you want to convey as a brewer. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so I, I brewed Pilsner my entire career back. My first brewing job was at what was Utah Brewers Cooperative, Squatters yeah. Wasatch. Uh, they're a super talented team. We were making an awesome 4% pills yeah. uh, back then. And uh, that kind of like got my teeth sunk into there. And then uh, from there to chucking up brewery, I, I was... Another classic lager brewer. Oh, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I was Will Amari's uh, first head brewer there and helped them uh, that first... Um, push to get open and get out the door and uh, uh, and then brought beer to the market and that one of the main drivers even back then 
was Pilsner. And just, we, at the time, was, I mean, this was, you know, 2008, 2009, and uh, people were not really knowing much about craft lagers, but we were bringing hop forward, really nice, full flavored uh, lagers to Seattle market, and they had a niche, and so, and, and people liked them. So I kept that driving, and uh, obviously, brewed lager was at full sale. And then with Freem, I, you know, built the whole brewery that could make flavorful, really nice lager. Uh, you know, from all the equipment choices to, you know, making sure that we have enough capacity that you could actually have right. uh, time and attention to be able to do it. And so all those things add up that it's, uh, you got this beautiful, beautiful malt base beer emphasized by hops and that really round, wonderful lager component. You know, it's it's a far cry from uh, boring industrial lager. Sure, you know, it sure. might look similar from a far, far distance, but uh, they... So let's, you know, let's kind of dive into that a little bit deeper. Like how, you know, when, when uh, you say a beautiful malt base, what does that malt base look like for you? What, uh, you know, how do you select malt to, to add some of the character that you're looking for in, in, a, in a Pilsner? Absolutely. You know, I think when you, when you look at you look at lager beer, it's, you know, it's malt and yeast-driven beers, right? Yeah. So your your malt selection has to be super important and very critical. And so right. uh, we're very fortunate. We have a great relationship with Gambrinus Malting. Okay. Uh, they're out of lower British Columbia, and they're uh, German-inspired maltster. And they make wonderful, wonderful uh, malted barley for us. And then, uh, But it's cool. It's, but it's... Uh, it's from all from Lower British Columbia, Idaho, you know, in, in the region. So relatively local regional yeah, product. Yeah, for absolutely, you. Sure, absolutely. Sure. And so that gives a lovely flavor of our own terroir. But then, uh, I mean, we think Byron makes some of the best malt in the world. Yeah. And so, just like great brewers blend hops to create great flavors for Hopford beer, we we blend malts to drive the flavors. Where we find, you know, just like if you do a single hop uh, IPA or a pale ale you're going to get the best and the worst flavors coming through those hops. It's the same thing with malt. And so we really blend our ratios to make the better parts equalize and then get the nice flavors. And so, uh, and then that balancing that with pH and then, you know, making sure you got a great, uh, you know, perfect grind in your mill down to, we do a a step mash. Okay. uh, And, uh, very traditional, very very German. Right. Uh, but then we really are able to bring all that malt flavor out, get that beautiful extract, and then which also then creates a wonderful water, uh, which you get really bright wort. Yeah. Uh, and then you know, it's, so with lager brewing, it's every point in the process to get those flavors. And so, uh, and then obviously, uh, hops are still even though they're not the not the lead lead singer there on the right. uh, on the lager beers are really important. So we have. Uh, we use quite a few different hops in our world of lager beers, but Pilsner in particular, uh, we we have a German hop supplier that we work directly with, and I I go over and select uh, yeah. and make sure we're getting those wonderful, wonderful, noble flavors that harmonize so well uh, with with the lager beer. Well, talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, you know, you say noble flavors, but are there uh, you know specific characters in those hops that you try to stay away from? Are there specific ones that uh, you know from a sensory perspective that uh, that really sing for you? You know, I think it really depends on what you want to do. I mean, that's I mean, the beauty of all different beers is, in the, as a brewer, you can yeah. you can you can task a beer with what you want it. Fun seeing people doing different things now. Yeah. Like a bunch of my uh, SoCal brewer friends are doing way more like like a West Coast, like sure, sure. like new school hops, like super hop forward, dry totally hop. American yeah. takes on a pilsner yeah, yeah, in that yeah. creative forward thinking way. Sure, and and that's awesome. We enjoy yeah. that. We we played around with some of that too. And I think that's cool, intriguing. But yeah. for for Freem Pilsner, it's uh, you know traditional, but also American, uh, we you know the noble flavors. We're using we're using Tetanang, uh, which is very traditional. Right, a little bit of pearly, which also very traditional. Uh, Spalt Select, incredibly traditional, uh, and then uh, Saphir, which is a newer German hop in the world of German hops. Not that right. that, that new, but it's pretty old brewing tradition there. And, you know, the combination of those, you get a little spice, you get a little zest, you get earth. You know, it's like springtime running through a, a field of uh, wildflowers. You know, that's what we, we feel like Freem Pills is on. It has that. And we're doing something that a lot of the Germans wouldn't do is we we don't dry hop that beer, but we do add a good amount of hops to the Whirlpool. Oh, okay. So, you know, trekking that balance between tradition and then right. American, American brewing and making it our own and 
It was just really like it's just enough hops that keeps your trees just snappy enough. It's just malty enough, and so you know it's definitely definitely a house favorite. Most time you walk around the brewery, most of the brewers are drinking. Yeah, pills. I think you go to most breweries, and most of the brewers <laughs> are drinking pills for sure. Um, uh, on on that one, uh, you know, how do you do? You naturally carbonate, or you uh, you know, force carbonating? With you know, I know certain brewers, especially on the lager brewing side, have. Uh, different and also equally pitched opinions uh, around those kinds totally. of things. Yeah, yeah. How do you follow on that? For lager beers, you know, I mean, it, lager beers are different than how we treat right. our, our hop forward beers. We're not; they're all all different process. But for lager beers, with we do uh, a really cool run in uh, and then really cool fermentation in the in the fifties. And when we get to the end of fermentation, we use a device called uh, barbecuner or spunding, yeah. and so we're restricting. Uh, the the CO2 release at the last right. degree or two of Plato uh, and start recapturing some of that CO2 uh, and naturally carbonating the beer. We do that and then we make sure we keep uh, uh, tank pressure a good amount on the tank and so we'll, we'll end up targeting um, uh, 11 or 12 PSI uh, towards the end of conditioning and uh, we like a higher volume of CO2. The yeah. CO2 is definitely a ingredient in sure. lager beers, you know. Oh, there we and, are. Uh, <laughs> the other ingredient in beer. <laughs> and acid, you know. Yeah, and yeah. They, they touch each other. Uh, and so we like that higher volume. We push draft. And so we'll be like 2.7 volumes. And okay. then uh, bottles and now cans. We're like a 2.8 uh, and 2.9 respectively. Okay. Uh, that just really makes that sing. But when we, uh, we centrifuge our beer, and so when we're going... When we're going to the centrifuge, it's it's ninety five to ninety nine percent carbonated, and yeah. then we're just fine tuning that last bit. So and you can you can taste it, you can see it. The bubbles are tight. It, yeah. it, it lifts on the tongue really really well, and then the foam is beautiful. Those yeah. tiny bubbles really hold the foam and sparkle. Have you jumped into the whole slow pour uh, side pull uh, you know, uh, tap faucet uh, realm yet? We we have not. But one <laughs> thing we have done is we just got uh, uh, gravity cast the the German style ones, and so we're. We're pretty excited about playing around with those and doing it, like having some events, doing it Munich style, yeah. uh, which is which is pretty fun. We literally just got this in and figured out how to get them cleaned and decided right. to get some beer in them. So yeah, we're always playing around with stuff. Uh, you did, uh, I think, just over the past year, make a transition from purely bottling your pilsner to now canning. How has that impacted uh, the beer itself uh, in the way, or is this just simply a way to put that in a format that people want pilsner and, and to drink it more often? Or, uh, you know, with being quality first and innovation first um, over sales and growth, you know, it's been really important to protect the brand and what we're doing. And so, you know, we're, we're very heavy draft brewery historically. Um, and then we also then have our 500 mil bottles and our 375 mil bottles and our draft still growing for us. Uh, in a time when single serve is not growing, we're, it's still growing for us. And so those have been awesome. We love those and it allows us to have a ton of diversity and ton of flexibility. And when you, for a brewery like us, it has you know good amount of distribution between uh, Oregon and Washington. Yeah. What we, we've been having people ask us for years, almost every day. I get so many questions. When are you guys in a can? When can I get, when can I get free pills in a can? And I was like, oh, when, when we can, right? So, because I've never wanted to compromise and our teams never want to compromise uh, any of our other projects or any of the right. quality. But, you know, you, you commit to something like that and that volume, you got to be ready, ready to bring it. And so that's been part, we've had to do huge capacity expansions to build a, uh, build to make it happen. And so that's, we're coming off of that and we have an awesome plan in place to keep quality first and foremost. And then we're just creating new opportunities for more occasions uh, for, for drinking free pills has been the, been the driver. Then we're also uh, canning IPA at the moment. We will see about more opportunities oh, in the future. Interesting. interesting. It has to be, a, I mean, from a business perspective, it's a hard model to focus on a Pilsner and draft. I mean, you, there's a limit to what you can sell that keg for to any kind of account, uh, given to what, you know, what they normally you know, charge for Pilsner. And to make that business model work, you're right. You have to sell a lot of it. You have to make it up in volume because you're not getting it, you know, on a, on a kind of per keg basis. I mean, that has to be kind of a leap of faith for you and your business partners to then invest in that kind of capacity and that kind of volume and then a sales apparatus to make sure that those you get you're selling enough of that to, uh, you know, compared to what you're making. I mean, you know, is, is really Pilsner going to do that for you? I mean, that it just sounds risky to me. Well, you know, it's it's been a, we have a great baseline, you know, okay. and so we've, we've grown 
We've, it, a lot of our growth has been driven by pull. It hasn't been very push. It's been very oh, organic. Okay. We have a sales team supporting. We have an awesome sales team. And, yeah. you know, the sales team, we've always, they're cheerleaders. Is that and, just a desire on the accounts to then, like, have a good locally made, highly crafted Pilsner and you're there in the category? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And, and driving it. You know, yeah. we're, we're in Oregon, right? Which is, right. you know, hot focus sure, everything sure. and we obviously make a lot of hop forward focused beers uh but it has been so great to see the reception of uh you know oregon washington they're, they're old they're older markets compared yeah. to the rest of the country yeah. but it goes to show as people's palates progress and change there's this huge thirst for craft loggers and uh and it, it's driving our brewery and it's solidifying the brand yeah and we have great distribution we're really proud of a lot of our placements i mean the food scene in portland is incredible uh, I'm really proud to go in some of the nicest restaurants in Portland and you get to drink a free pills. And that, that's something that we're really proud of and we'd love to partake in right, uh, as right. well. And we've made, it, we've made it the cornerstone of the brewery. Uh, but then also always growing our other programs as well. Sure. Uh, I think, you know, having a lot of focus, but then having a lot of uh, flexibility as well. And, you know, using some of the other stuff to drive loggers and drive the brand, but then have some focus and some push from our direction, it's been awesome. But then to have some natural pickup on that, we've been—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's really been a blessing. You know? Sure, sure. But yeah, let's pivot a little bit and talk about some of those other things. I mean, you also have an equal passion, I think, for wild and sour beer, and have uh, grown that program at Freem uh, very significantly over the last uh, you know number of years. Uh, what 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 is driving that? And again, how do you uh, you know faced inspired by you know say Belgian forebears? create an identity for for sour beer that you produce that is you know not just a you know a photocopy of belgian but also feels like beer that you want to to release under the freem brand absolutely absolutely uh, you know within the as i go back to the heart of the brewery is pilsner i uh, you know that that stems out to what that does to the rest of the beers and we're, we're a nuanced brewery you know we like very very balanced uh, very very harmonious flavors and so we do that with our lagers and we also do that with our barrel age uh, Belgian inspired beers and other more American uh, uh, nuancey uh, right. barrel age projects you know that's it's not it's not loud it's not rough it's 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 delicate and so it's been awesome to see you know, from our really traditional beers like our Flanders inspired beers right. uh, to more of our uh, fruit uh, uh, lambic inspired beers uh, to our like niche like dry hop barrels of this put it into this and like a bunch of other experimental type stuff uh, that you know to be able to have the distribution that we have with Pilsner and IPA we have an account basis that we're able to manage quite a bit of growth in draft right. and, and also in package and then you know more occasions right you know I mean now we have people have the opportunity to drink uh, free pills, whether out skiing or mountain biking, but then you know you're having a nice dinner, uh, you're at home or at a restaurant. You can have another layer of flavors to pair with food. I mean, a lot of our beers are very, very food friendly, right? Uh, and we want that harmonious experience. And so, uh, with with our current expansion that we're doing, uh, we're building another facility about 20 miles west of us that we're consolidating uh, our dry storage, our cold storage. But in order to do the capacity that we currently need for the future cans. We're moving all our wood program uh, oh, to the new okay. facility. And then having to build it. to tote wort back and forth? Yeah, 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 oh, exactly. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I know uh, a few other breweries that do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, but we're allow us to even do more with our barrel aging program. Okay. So we're in a pretty cool spot right now where we have all programs are growing and, and, and doing really, really well. Uh, and there's a lot of excitement for them. And we're, our job as brewers is to keep all those beers fresh and innovative. And we have, I have such a talented team on the, on the brewery side and we have, all these really direct meetings and they have meetings with their teams and it's this revolving uh, weekly cycle of everything that we're doing to make the beer better and better and better and more innovative and stay on top of things but also like making sure the beers that we brewed early on and make sure those are still fresh and relevant and so we're doing the same thing with the barrel aged beers and yeah. from the sour stuff to the uh, more American spirit uh, bigger uh, more robust beers uh, but uh, what what is what does that system of innovation look like for you? I mean, you know, you, you mentioned you've got a talented staff and you all work together, um, you know, but how, where do these ideas come from where you, 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 you know, conceive of, we want to make this kind of sour beer, we think this kind of fruit will go well with this kind of base, and then as it's developing, how do you make the decisions about how you steer that beer 
or how to make it, you know, turn it into what you actually want it to, to taste like? Or do you let the beer, you know, do more speaking around that? Um, you know, I'm just always curious about what that process looks like and how you make some decisions about what to do with these various things. Because they don't always work out the way you expect them to, but then there are also, you know, environmental factors that you can, technique and processes that you can apply to, to move them in certain directions if they're not going away that you want them to go. Absolutely, absolutely. Great question. You know, I think it's a little bit of all those things, uh, but first, it first starts with team, right? There's a lot of different ways to make beer. Uh, we have Gavin Lord, uh, who's our head brewer and runs our R&D and, uh, <clears throat> and manages all our barrel program and innovation, all the wood side. Uh, then you have Brian Cardwell, who runs production day to day on the floor and is a driver of all, all, the, all the weekly stuff, but also very involved in that creative input side. And then we have Max Kravitz, uh, who's our uh, quality control and laboratory manager. And the four of us work really closely together. And, you know, we, most of the time we start with an idea. And uh, it's like, all right, we want to do this. And I feel I'm very fortunate now that I'm more like a coach and give the give the players what they need to, to do the job. And sure. these guys come up with a lot of awesome ideas, like the uh, nectarine uh, gold nail, which won uh, gold at uh, World Beer Cup last spring. Uh, that was Gavin. Like That was his, his dream, his vision for that beer. And he put forward the idea and made it happen. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful beer. And so a beer like that was like, it was driven by the team and we worked on it together and it turned out awesome. And so, but then there's other stuff that we, we learn along the way, right? As you're going right. that, I mean, the thing about making barrel aged beer, it's a lot more like making wine. So we, we have a lot of connection with winemakers, obviously being sure. in, being Oregon, a lot of them come out uh, and they, they drink a lot of beer. A lot of them, it's pretty fun. They have free <laughs> sure. pills uh, at, at their wineries. Yeah. And so I, I, and so, they come out to the brewery and they look around all the different projects that we do and you know, they work on a very like seasonal cycle uh, and like man don't you guys just get like bored of uh, <laughs> brewing Pilsner like every day batch over batch over batch over batch and like well here's 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 the deal is that it's awesome because with every batch we can make a little change if we brew those are 100, 200, 300 times in a year. We can make incremental changes and make it better and better and better. Where you guys on the winemaker side, you know, you might be able to change wine 35 times in your life if you've got a solid wine career, right? Because you're on an annual cycle. But yeah. that, that same cycle revolves to uh, barrel age or wood program. So it, the the learning is slow and it's a couple years lagged. And yeah. so there's things that we're doing now that we're trying to off of batches that are like been aging for two or three years now we're making changes that will go forward so you know future beers uh and so within that you you have to react quite a bit you have to blend accordingly uh and you have to be nimble yeah that does have to be hard i mean you know we watched we've watched trends pop over the last two or three years like you know for example this giant shift among the in the world of sour beer towards golden sours you know a bit of a move you know, for the market away from the kind of Flanders and heavier, sweeter, you know, darker types of sours. And then, um, you know, but reacting to a trend like that, like you say, takes a couple of years. Also, I've seen in general, you know, brewers reducing the acidity levels of their beer yeah. that, uh, you know, we came out of this, you know, looking at acidity like we used to look at hops, like how many, how much can we put in and totally. can, can we make it more intense? And, uh, you know, but then folks, you know, as is typical of American exuberance, we overdo it, and then we back back off and, and find a place of balance, you know, yeah, to, uh, yeah. where it sits for for the longer term. You know, but again, you've got a few years of uh, of beer that's still sitting in wood that's still going to hit that kind of acidity level, and it's hard to you know to shift in that kind of uh, you know quicker time frame. Absolutely. Um, even though you know some consumer preferences are shifting around that, how do you how do you manage that from a business and a brewing perspective? One thing, one thing, fortunately for us, is that once again it gets back to that balance, and we never played the high acid game. You know, we yeah. we wanted we wanted balance. We've done a lot of research into different types of acid and setting out our beers. Some other orders. Oregon breweries that were definitely beating you in the acid game. There. Yeah, yeah, I won't yeah, name yeah. any names, but I think yeah, yeah, we can guess. <laughs> but we early on we started looking at like yeah. total acidity and how many grams per liter, and then we've now hit a sweet spot. We're like very comfortable with some beers. Just using delicate loads of like five yeah. or six grams, oh, okay, and that that can be really really nice with a little right. bit of wood background and other flavor components. It, do, it doesn't it doesn't have to be an acid beer, but it can have a sure. nice lactic flavor to it. But then there's other beers that that with fruit or other things that we really end up we really like an eight to eleven grams per liter, okay, and then 
certain fruit will push higher You're levels. You're talking of, titratable acidity. Yeah, levels. total acidity. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Uh, and just in case anyone's not familiar, totally, yeah. totally. And we we find that we still look at pH with those beers. Yeah. But you know, once again, because being like winemakers, there's a lot more. We find there's a lot more value add in really dialing in and looking at that pH and so they were excuse me, that TA uh, and if you're able to keep that TA under control uh, and then we also by doing so we're, we're playing around with different microorganisms more microorganisms different types of barrels studying taking notes learning from uh, different batches that we're doing right. and then blending uh, and so but yeah you you know you you, you throw away some beer uh, from not, yeah. not everything goes well in a, in a barrel right. uh, and you also have to be nimble to marketplace change, consumer preferences, yeah. and so you know that's as we're growing our program. You know, the, the more you make, the the bigger the risk, right? Yeah. Uh, How do you uh, you know uh, keep that acidity under control? You know, is it uh, does it come down to? Uh, the uh, the culture that you're using and how you're you know tilting that culture are you using uh, more increased hops rates in order to you know to uh, keep those uh, bacteria in check uh, you know what, what's that look like for you to to kind of dial in and, and pinpoint that uh, six or eight grams per liter uh, acidity level absolutely so first and foremost search of the barrel and okay. so we're very particular about the barrels we get uh, we it, if it wasn't something great in the barrel beforehand, you're probably not going to make a great beer. Yeah. Uh, and so, and all, a lot of that's going to how you're going to start controlling your microorganisms. And so, by having a really good wood base uh, and having a barrel prepped, uh, by you what know, defines good? Uh, so, for the most of our programs, we really enjoy French oak uh, okay. as, as a whole. Uh, we're really fortunate to work uh, with winemakers like Domaine Serene, for example, uh, out of the Willamette Valley. They. Uh, they do a Burgundian approach to making yeah. wine, and so they're getting the nicest French oak barrels in the world, and they're doing two or three turns on them. And so we get them for a much better deal than they do uh, after they're done using them. And then, but they come to you in pretty good shape, in then. wonderful shape. And then, you know, a lot of times we'll start off by putting our Flanders beers in them, and we'll get a really good base. And then we turn over a couple of vintages, and we like for our lambic inspired beers to have whether it was wine or beer, have six or seven turns uh, to get more neutral flavors out. But you know. We're we're monitoring pretty closely. So you put Flanders in first because there's still a lot of wood character in it, and yeah. that that kind of heavier, stronger, sweeter, you know, beer will will interact, you know, kind of counteract some of that wood flavor. Absolutely, and some okay. of those wood tannins can go, you know, as gets down to like a six to eight TA on really? a Flanders beer, and then okay. you have a little bit of like tannin there from the wood, yeah. a little bit dynamic, and a little of that Pinot Noir flavor. It, it creates another layer. We, like, sure. we love multi-dimensional beer. So you can use other things uh, to, to drive uh, the, not just acidity, but the complexity yeah. that boosts forward other flavors. And so, but then within that, you know, the beer that you put into it's got to be good and it's got to be in sure. good shape. And so we, we remove yeast if we're like from like a Flanders beer or something of that we're going to pitch. Uh, if we're pitching a finished beer into a barrel, we're going to remove the yeast beforehand and then inoculate so we're not having autolysis or uh, creating uh, other funky flavors that are going to mess up. So are you nicer. doing some souring then in stainless and then loading those sour beers into wood? Or am well, I getting the, this wrong? No, we'll like centrifuge the oh, beer okay. and then move it over to wood and then pitch. But then, but then on the opposite side, more of like Alambic-inspired beers or spontaneous beers, we're using our cool ship, and then those are going through a spontaneous okay. fermentation. And then uh, and then some of those programs were also to control. We're pitching uh, into barrels, but then... It all stays over the sour side. It's always its whole life is in, in, in barrels. Yeah. Uh, but you know how you treat how you treat the barrels, right? I uh, are you purging them beforehand? You know that's an incredibly important thing. Right. How right. much you move them around? We try not to move the barrels around at all. You yeah. Know, we, some some breweries top some uh, rely on pellicle. We're at a pellicle heavy brewery. Okay. We let we let that pellicle sit in and we like, yeah. try not to touch it. And if you're keeping oxygen away, you're gonna you're gonna control your microflora more, and you're gonna give more of the lactic and the the softer uh, bacteria more of a chance to grow, uh, and rather than like Acetobacter or some of those other bigger, sharper uh, acidity drivers. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, let's you know when you start talking about oxygen and, and you know, preventing ingress there uh, with fruit additions, that also becomes an important thing with sour beer. And, and you know, adding fruit in the specific ways that you do that can uh, uh, you know turn a good beer bad really quickly. Um, what are some of the ways that uh, 
you find effective to add different fruits into those sour beers? Absolutely, yeah. We've, we've invested quite a bit in our facility and what we have to work with, especially with fruit. We love our fruited beers, like, especially on the sour side. And that, it, it's a beautiful... Well, clearly the World Beer Cup judges do too, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love yours, uh, I should say. I, but... We, uh, even our blind judges at Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine also yeah, like yeah. yours, too. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, so what we're doing with those guys is we have uh, their wine tanks. Uh, okay. And what we do is we have, we live in a beautiful place, uh, right. and that's wonderful fruit. So first and foremost, we're getting fresh fruit. Literally, most of it's like five miles down the road wow. from our cherries okay. to our nectarines to our blueberries. Uh, you know, we get some stuff out of Willamette Valley. We don't grow a lot of raspberries in Hood River, yeah. uh, but Willamette Valley grows wonderful raspberries. And so we're first and foremost getting really, really high quality fruit and, yeah. and getting it fresh. And then uh, and what we do is we put the fruit into these wine tanks, stainless. Uh, fresh. Fresh, yeah. Not frozen. Well... How do you process? I So if you take like a, a peach, we're yeah. we're ripping that in half and pulling out the pit. And then, okay. and then those halves then go into the to the wine tank. Uh, uh, whereas cherries just go all in, no mm. stem, but pits in with, yeah. with the pits. Uh, but then our berries, we like to do uh, flash freezing to okay. break down those... Sure, those cell walls, yeah. Exactly. And so... Uh, and then we'll do a flash freeze and then put them into the tank. And so we get the fruit in there. Right away, we get a purge on the tank uh, with CO2. Uh, and then, then we rack uh, the lambic-inspired base or whatever the whatever base we're using. Uh, How long does it, pur- does it take to purge uh, out a tank like that? Oh, I mean... It, Four to five minutes, hour oh, and a half. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, nothing crazy. Uh, just You're not to, too fanatical about that. No, I mean, we just treat it like a bright tank. Yeah, and so, yeah. uh, and but then what that does is there, then there's obviously it helps reduce oxidation of the fruit. Where you give it a moment to rack beer onto it, but then right away we'll kick off another fermentation sure. from all the microflora on the fruit. Right. And so, uh, and so that that lends itself to like these really bright flavors, really fresh, and then it. Then it really allows also the movement of the fruit within the tank and hmm. takes all that fruit flavor yeah. out of it. And we always call it, we, that process will take us anywhere from three to eight months, depending on the fruit. But okay. fruit's always tempting to, to, to eat when you get out of it, <laughs> but it only takes once or twice to learn that those are dead bodies. Yeah. You, you, it's all that fruit's in the beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you ever been, uh, ever tried using the second yeast fruit on another beer for, for subtlety? or uh, we, we never, We've never done yeah, that. No, no, no. There's, we're, Maybe that's an idea. I don't. I, I haven't heard of anybody doing that, but maybe, maybe there, there there could be something there. Good but ones. Yeah, but yeah. there's not much left of that fruit if, for aging it that well, long. Three and eight months. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. If you're doing a quick return, it could be a little bit different. Yeah. What are your What are some of your personal favorites on your uh, of your sour beer and wood aged beer repertoire? Uh, of, of, and what makes them great? Uh, Humbly speaking, of course. <laughs> you know, I, I always preface that. You know, with all the beers that we do, it's it's like it's like children. I you know you, you love you love all your kids, uh, but they right. all have, they all have their time and place, right? So I uh, I love some of my kids more than others. Right? But <laughs> don't tell them that. Uh, but just kidding, kids. <laughs> uh, but for me, uh, some of the, some of the standouts we've had uh, recently uh, the. The Nectarine Golden Ale. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're just about to launch that for its second year. That that's been a really cool, dynamic beer, uh, new foray for us. Where we're using yeah. not there's actually no uh, uh, bacteria pitch right, on that beer. Yeah. It's just it's just Brett uh, that's aged in Sauvignon Blanc barrels, fresh, uh, and then aged on the fruit. And so you have the three layers uh, uh, from the the wood uh, from the from the fruit, and then from the from the Brett. Uh, that gives us this really cool new whatever awesome. rides in with the fruit exactly exactly <laughs> and so that's been an awesome beer yeah. uh, Druif uh, which is our uh, we use Riesling grapes uh, with our lamp expired base that's been a continued year over year collaboration with Brooks Winery at Willamette Valley they do wonderful white wines uh, very German inspired yeah. and so we work directly with their growers to figure out what, what are the what's going to be the best for this year's vintage so that truly is a vintage year over year uh, that's been a super fun beer for us on the, on the wood age side yeah. um, Pesh is always one of my favorite uh, peaches are beautiful yeah. we work with this awesome local farmer uh in uh Mosier, which is just 
five miles south of us, and he grows uh, heirloom varieties. And so we're able to do, use really cool varieties like uh, Suncrest and Arctic Gem. And there's such dynamic, beautiful mm. fruit. Like when you go out to his orchard, his biodynamic farm, it's super, very diverse. Yeah. The way he's growing, and you're pulling those peaches off the tree <laughs> and biting into them in the sud, you know, that you could you can still taste that in the beer. And so it, that's, I feel like we've done something awesome if we're able to, to achieve that. And so I'm within that though, I'm always excited to watch uh, as our cool ship is a newer endeavor for us. And as we're moving that into those beers, uh, I'm excited to see those evolve. Uh, I still feel there's like a whole nother level of scope that we haven't hit yet on those beers that we can still get to and how many years are you in on that project we just actually started using the cool ship this last fall okay so we're just starting to integrate those uh and you already even last fall you have some stock that you can that's young but still interesting already tasting no it's (laughs) it's still gross okay (laughs) weird it's normally what at least a year before folks yeah 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 yeah. yeah. so it's it's progressing how how much you know i'm curious about this i mean that's another one of those leaps of faith you know you uh you you know brew some batches and you spend thousands of dollars on uh, on that and time for your employees you spend more money on barrels you load it all up and you cross your fingers and hope to god that uh uh, you get something at the local culture where you are, you know, is, is produces something that's enjoyable to drink. Absolutely. Um, you know, how, uh, yeah, t- tell me a little bit about that leap of faith and uh, what you, uh, you know, any kind of experimentation that you did leading up to the point where you were willing to really jump into it like that. Totally. Because Hood River, I mean, there, it's still, you know, it's Oregon. There's, it's, it's a verdant environment, but it, you're kind of on the edge of, you know more dryness down there which can you know be do strange things to these kind of bacterial cultures yeah we're, all, we're also very very similar uh climate to, to brussels and so yeah. with, so that that's you know there's a lot of data based upon that okay. uh and so that and then with all our agriculture uh also yeah, makes it pretty yeah. pretty interesting but yeah we, you know you really don't know until you right. until you do and so we've done lots of little trials and pulled stuff out of the air from the lab side to see see what we get and there's yeah. definitely interesting things i uh, and then but you know it gets back to the business side and then you know are we what, what what's is the dollar driving first or is it the beer and so the, the beer is always driving first and and then figure out the financial side on right. the second right. half of it so we're not we're not banking on using any of these first rounds most right. likely they'll turn out good and we're hoping yeah. on that but we, yeah. we have back stock and i think that's <laughs> Part of the, yeah, having a dynamic yeah. barrel program, you have to have extra beer, and you, right, get, you, right. you have to be really careful about how much you bank on stuff because stuff does go weird. And, and like you have, you, you have every little individual vessel is different. You know, right. I, I'm always amazed. Like when we do these blends of 30, 40, 50 barrels, we line each individual barrel up blind, and we we sit in our conference room, and uh, Gavin writes, writes on the whiteboard, and the rest of our team we. We, we taste them, we call off notes, and we score them, and then we figure out how to blend them or, or, and, or dump them, you know? Yeah. Some things go awry, and then that barrel needs to be either uh, cold or we need to steam it or do other things. And so similar approach to the yeah. to the Cool Ship beers. We'll, we'll, we'll get into them individually, and the ones that work well, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll obviously use, and other ones we'll, we'll, we'll try again. Uh, and we know we have a learning curve there, but right. we do what we do, and we have a lot of great friends in the industry. Uh, we've been working with them pretty closely, anyone that has experience in this right, realm. Right. And what are they doing? Whether they're seeing success, whether they're seeing failures. Yeah. But then how much tradition are we using, and whether there's data there. So I think we, we have good, good intent. For these Lambic-style beers, spontaneous beers, are, are they all going into individual uh, you know, wine barrels, or are they going... Are you doing any food or aging for those kind of beers as well? At, at the moment, it's all individual barrels. Okay. In the future, with our new facility, we'd like to have some fooders, uh, yeah. which would be super cool. I found it interesting that one of your compatriots in Oregon, uh, you know, Trevor Rogers and DeGard, actually went back from fooders, got rid of them, because he liked what you were just talking about, that variance in barrel to barrel. And uh, you know, because each one was so different, created more of a, you know, a broad canvas, uh, you know, different pigments from which to paint. Um, you know, that becomes an interesting thing uh, in terms of incorporating that art of the blend and giving you more options to play with. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, we, on the other side, on our Flanders program, we do have fooders for that. And what we've learned uh, is that we love the blend of the fooder beer and uh, huh. of the individual barrels. The, 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 the fooders that we have, the, they have such a distinct, beautiful 
uh, dimensional flavor. But on its own, it's like, it's okay. But you blend that in with a bunch of different diversity of flavors, and then 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 you have an orchestra, and then now now yeah. now, now you have some complexity and some diversity, and so there's some great lambic uh, producers that use large vats and, and feeders yeah, very yeah. successfully for sure. Uh, but then they're they're blending in different volumes and stuff. So I think we hope to uh, integrate yeah, that's that. That's great. It's over like complementary between these two different. You know, you've got a solid base, and then you've got your. Uh, you know, creative notes that you blend into that. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's 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 enjoyable. You know, you, the more diverse the palette, the more opportunity you have, and so and that's one thing we've been learning. That's also one of the reasons why we waited um, on on a cool ship. We started our program of these lime inspired beers with doing different pitches right. years ago, but we really wanted to understand wood and the microflora interaction with that and then how sure. that interacts with fruit now we have a great baseline now we know we've uh, we're on maybe i think this year is our fourth vintage of uh, uh fruited lambic inspired beers okay for example and now we have four years of data from what type of acids are there what type of flavors are present and now we know what the spontaneous beer by introducing that you know wh- what what is that component doing right. to the beer which is pretty cool that's absolutely cool um What's next for Frame? What's on the horizon? Uh, you know, you're making a whole bunch of Pilsner, and uh, you, you know, you're loving that. And you, as, as you mentioned earlier, you're making small changes to improve the beer sometimes with every batch. Um, you know, but is there any other? Are there any other big moves on that on the horizon for Frame? Well, I mean, right now we're kinda, we're kind of in it right now. I mean, we yeah. have, it's pretty huge expansion. We're taking our okay. thirty thousand barrel uh, capacity facility and turning it into a sixty thousand building this new wood program that or expanding our wood program to a new facility that we can grow it by five or ten x if if we choose to. Yeah. And so it's really the, like we built up the base to to do these things, and now it's to grow into them and, and enjoy them, and you know like do what. I think yeah, a lot of brewers yeah. strive to do is just have fun making beer, uh, and then and then making it better. We love making beer is great, but making it better is even more great uh, or greater. I uh, and I think the the with even like with every expansion that we've done, yeah. uh, we've always looked at quality first. Like okay, with this with this expansion, how do we how do we make quality better? How do we make efficiency better? Right. How do we make throughput better? Right. So at the end of it, you know, with growth, you have better beer yeah and i think we've went through like actual growing our brewery and uh we'll celebrate seven years this summer uh we've created an opportunity now that uh we can have even higher level equipment uh more robust super talented team to concentrate on those areas more and more and so we're really excited about just diving into that and kind of doing what we do and then see what the future has has to has to hold for us well, I can't wait to uh, taste the next beers that you make, Josh. Absolutely. Cool. Well, thanks for joining me on the podcast. If people want to learn more about Freem, uh, where do they find you? Um, you check out freembeer.com. Uh, then you can find our, uh, everything from Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram page from there. Fantastic. I want to thank our sponsors, uh, G&G Chillers, SNS Brewtech, the American Homebrewers Association, and BSG. And if uh, you enjoyed this episode and enjoy what we do, uh, check out beerandbrewing.com. Hit that subscribe button. Subscribe to our magazine. Enjoy what we read. Uh, See our blind panel's reviews of Josh's beers, which uh, tend to perform incredibly well over and over again. Thanks, (laughs) Jamie. But thanks for talking to me. We'll be back uh, next week with another episode. Cheers. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.